been a meditation teacher for 35 or 40 years. And during that time, I have come to the conclusion that, at least for me, that following some of the traditional teachings has been problematic. Uh, When I was very young, I had uh, twice I almost got electrocuted by being a curious boy and putting hairpins in electrical outlets and forks and toasters and things that curious boys tend to do. Uh, Sort of fried my nervous system to a certain extent. And it may be funny to you, but I assure you that I didn't enjoy it quite so much. But what I, I began to really discover was that these practices that are so precious and beautiful, that were designed 1,500 years ago to three or 4,000 years ago, were designed by people and for people who were grounded, centered, loved their mommy and daddy, and were unneurotic. <laughs> and when I look around the room, or when I look into the mirror, I find that maybe that isn't true for all of us. Now, Spirit Rock is one of the few places that, in my opinion, really takes into account the fact that these traditional practices of disidentifying from ego structure when placed upon a neurotic neurotic ego structure might lead to some kind of problems. And that Jack, being a PhD psychologist and many of the teachers on the staff here being very psychologically sophisticated, uh, in many of the the teachings it's taken into account that many of us aren't ready to just plunge into this great adventure of letting go and disidentifying with who we think we are. So in my work with dying people, and particularly in my own meditation practice, I have put together a paradigm that I have found very, very useful. And I'd like to give you this brief overview uh, and leave some time for questions. You may know that in Buddhism there are what are called the three yanas. Hinayana, which is the same as Theravada or Vipassana practice, Mahayana, Zen practice, and Vajrayana, Tibetan practice. Hinayana is a kind of insult because it means lesser vehicle. So people in the Hinayana path don't call themselves that. They call it the Theravada path, which is the old school. And the, the basic practice in Hinayana is paying attention and also taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, realizing that there's something that can be trusted, that it's okay to just begin to start letting go and paying attention because there are these qualities of Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Buddha, not necessarily being this guy sitting behind me, but the fact of enlightenment, the fact that freedom exists and it's available to all of us. The Dharma is that there is a path to that freedom, an available path, and the Sangha is us. What we're doing is very difficult to do all by yourself. Every time you turn on the television set, go to a movie, go into a shop, the chances are about 99% that you're participating in the consciousness of somebody who is completely caught in the illusion that you and I are totally separate. When you're dead, that's it, that whole kind of worldview. So as Buddhism evolved, it then moved on to the Mahayana stage. Hinayana means lesser vehicle. Mahayana means greater vehicle. 
greater because it begins to bring in the quality of compassion. That I'm not practicing just for myself. I'm practicing for all beings. I'm sitting here for you, for people who are dying, people who are suffering, people who think they have lots of power in their lives, so that the motivation for practice changes. It's, it's, a, it's the greater vehicle. It's big enough to get not just me across the ocean of suffering, but all beings across that ocean. Vajrayana, Tibetan Buddhism. Vajra is the cutting through wisdom. So not only do we have compassion for ourselves and for other beings, not only have we gone into the Hinayana path of learning to pay attention and to invoke the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha, but there is a quality of empowerment. In other words, after the heart opens enough through compassion, so that I'm practicing not just for myself, then the blessings of the Buddhas, of the Christ, of the Mother, whatever flavor that you particularly like, begin to shower down. And that we are not practicing alone, we are part of a tradition, we are part of a lineage. And as part of our practice then, the qualities of the Buddha begin to operate through us. So, at the end then of these three yanas in various Buddhist traditions, there is what is called Mahamudra, Mahaati, Zogchen, the, the, the pathless path coming to the point where we realize that we are already there that there's nothing to be achieved, that in fact, your nature and my nature is pure, it is true, and there is really nothing to find. What you are looking for is who is looking. So, what I have done in terms of working with dying people and with some of these meditation groups that I have been leading is look at five stages of practice from the standpoint of heart, mind, and body. I find that for many people, and particularly myself, being this guy who got these electrical shocks when I was this curious little boy, that the path of the body is very useful for many of us in the beginning of practice. So when a child is born, if birthing goes relatively well, the first thing that happens is the child gets grounded. How many of us here in the West are really grounded where we're seated, where we're walking, where we're driving? When you meet somebody who's really grounded, who is connected to the earth, it is an unmistakable experience. And until we are grounded, going further into the spiritual paths of letting go of identification with ego structure can become quite problematic. Because here we are, not even being where we are, and we're trying to let go into something larger. The next stage in childhood development is becoming centered, centered in the belly center, the hara, the dantian, the kaf, depending on which tradition it is that we talk about. And when you or I meet somebody who is really fully operating in an embodied way from their belly, with the power, that can, the power of the universe that can really flow through them, from the belly, it is an unmistakable experience. So, from the standpoint of the body, this body channel I'm talking about, the first thing we need to do is get grounded and get centered before we start this great experiment of letting go of identification with ego structure. 
isn't it rather easy to imagine that if you're ungrounded and uncentered and you start saying, I'm not this thought, I'm not that thought, I'm not this bodily experience, that it can be fairly easy to get lost in space, if you will. In fact, there are many people who are drawn to the spiritual path because they aren't comfortable in their body and they want to get away from that discomfort by going off into these imagined spiritual realms. So in terms of this body channel, the first thing we need to do is learn to get grounded and centered. Maybe that doesn't sound particularly exciting or sexy, but if you are engaged in this process of disidentifying with ego structure, and you're not there physically in the first place, I think that it's probably not too hard to see the kinds of problems that can very easily arise. So there are these five different stages in these three channels of body, mind, and heart. First stage in practice is invocation. As we did in the beginning, looking at those four mind-turning truths, you're going to die, but you don't know when. Life is precious. There's suffering. There's karma. If we don't really know those truths, we're just plunging into spiritual practice without really being motivated, then the first time that something difficult comes along, we really get thrown off track. So in the beginning, we invoke. We invoke that which is true. The Buddha, the Christ, that which can be trusted. Now, I'm not here to talk you into any particular flavor of spirituality. I would guess that there's probably a high percentage of people here who are attracted to the Buddhist path. Uh, I'll make a confession that I'm probably as much of a Christian as I am a Buddhist. I believe it was Carl Jung who said that we eventually have to go back to the religion of our childhood to find integration. But that is really only only after having meditated intensively for 30 or 40 years to try to get over my PhD in mathematics, (laughs) which I assure you was quite a hurdle to jump over whatever I was doing. So the first stage, invocation, calling forth that which will support us when we meet things along the path that are difficult to be with. The next stage of the of the of practice is awareness. From a Buddhist standpoint, Vipassana, Hinayana, part of those stages I was talking about, it's learning to pay attention. From a bodily-based standpoint, it is these qualities of being grounded and centered. Do you know meditators, are you a meditator, who can get a very refined mind and then you get up from your seat and somebody bumps into you or something happens or there's an attractive person on the other side of the room or whatever it might happen to be, and all of a sudden, all that meditative wisdom is completely gone because it's not embodied. I could tell you some very humiliating stories about myself when I had these remarkable meditative experiences meditating with Goenka and other teachers off in India. He put me in a special room because my practice was getting so deep. And at the end of one particular meditation, I had completely disappeared and gone into this deep samadhi state for three quarters of an hour. And I got up and had to go through the main meditation hall to go to lunch. And somebody stood up and bumped into me. And I thought, do you know who you've just bumped into? (laughs) And I realized at that point that maybe I had a very nice experience but it had not uprooted the cause of suffering. 
So, invocation in the beginning, then awareness, whether it's from this bodily-based standpoint of getting grounded and centered, from a mind standpoint of cultivating awareness, or from a heart standpoint of learning to be in your heart and trust your heart in the moment. What the next stage of Buddhism, Mahayana Buddhism, brings into the mix is compassion. Buddhism historically developed from Vipassana, Hinayana, Theravada Buddhism to Mahayana Buddhism. Mahayana means greater vehicle. Hinayana, lesser vehicle, which the Theravada people find kind of insulting, so they call it Theravada, the old school instead. But the idea is that in Mahayana Buddhism, we bring in the idea of compassion. We're practicing not for ourselves, but we're practicing for all beings. I'm not meditating just so I can get enlightened, but so that I can be a force for healing on this plane of existence. Thomas Merton said, love and prayer are learned in the hour when prayer becomes impossible and the heart turns to stone. So it's easy for the heart to be open when you're at the beach with somebody you love and it's a perfect sunset and you're going off to have a wonderful dinner together, whatever it might happen to be. But suppose the doctor has just told you you have cancer. I'm sorry to tell you that, and I don't know how much there is I can do about it. Or your child has some illness, or all of a sudden your bank account is uh, much less than you had hoped. Can we then have compassion? Compassion literally means with passion with that quality of spacious heart. Now, the near enemy of compassion is pity. It looks a bit like compassion, but it is not compassion. Compassion has the quality of spaciousness, of connectedness, and of warmth. What would you think would be the bodily-based channel? I talked before, talking about mind, body, and heart, mind, body, and spirit, what would you think would be, a little guessing game here, the bodily-based channel that has to do with compassion? We've gone through the developmental stages, the childhood developmental stages of being grounded and centered. What energetic quality, bodily energetic quality, allows us to have compassion? Any guesses? Open heart. heart. Having appropriate boundaries. If we have overly rigid boundaries, suffering arises, don't want to feel it. Over permeable boundaries, oh my God, what a catastrophe, what's going on here? Sorry, microphone. And we get lost in the suffering. Appropriate boundaries... We have compassion for ourselves and for those around us. So, when you're around suffering and you feel this subtle or not so subtle quality of pushing away, of not wanting to feel the suffering of the homeless person on the street, or even more difficult, you turn on the television and you set set and you see a politician who seems to be saying incredibly selfish, self-centered things. And you then what naturally arises is the heart closes and you say, he, she is a bad person. Is it possible to keep the heart of compassion open, not necessarily approving of their behavior or their ideas, but at the same time not letting the quality of that person's being close your own heart. I run something called the Living Dying Project, not because I'm Mother Teresa in drag, pretty clear, 
But because I find that being around dying people forces me to see again and again and again the limits of my own open-heartedness. Fear of death is exactly equal to lack of enlightenment. So any place where you are afraid to die, that is the place where you or I are locked into our own separateness, the place that's going to die. Is there a level of consciousness that does not die? Is there part of you and I that is not going to die? And in being around dying people, and I use that term with a very large footnote that certainly allows for somebody who even has life, has a terminal prognosis to not die. But is it possible to be around death and not get lost in pushing away the fact that you're going to die and that person's going to die and we don't know when? That we can stay open to the possibility of life in each moment. And as I mentioned before, Trungpa Rinpoche, one of my first meditation teachers, was very clear in saying that until we come in intimate contact with death, all spiritual practice has the quality of being a dilettante. You can meditate till your knees fall off, but if you don't really know that there is the possibility of dying, not in some morbid sense, but in the sense of really awakening the preciousness of each moment of our existence, then meditation is really only serving the ego. It can help us be more effective people. You can get a better job. You can find better sexual partners. You can get better stuff in the world. But until we realize that we're going to die and that each breath we're taking, each thought that's arising, is an opportunity for being fully awake, until then, practice is really only scratching the surface. Rumi says that grief is the garden of compassion. Grief is the garden of compassion. And what that means to me, and I think what he means by that, is that until we actually come in touch with these boundary issues of pushing away the difficult and getting lost in what we're attracted to, until we get really in touch with that by cultivating deep awareness and compassion, then we can really not find an open heart. Grief is the garden of compassion until we begin to get in touch with our own grief, the grief of being separate. So if we look around the room right now, there's older, younger, bigger, smaller, male, female, fatter, thinner, with all the different kinds of differences that human beings have. In that dimension, I will die. In that dimension, you will die. Is there another way that we can look around the room and see that which does not die with a different way of looking, with a different set of eyes. Is there something that in each of us, some quality of consciousness that doesn't die? Stephen Levine, uh, my dear old friend Stephen Levine, wrote a book called Who Dies? Ramana Maharshi asked the question, who am I? So if in fact we really know that we're going to die, physically, can that then awaken us to who we are beyond that which is going to die? I find that being around death is the deepest inspiration to practice in this crazy 21st century world in which we are living. And I highly recommend that if anybody has the opportunity to be with a relative or a loved one or you're doing this professionally, but to really connect with somebody who is reaching the end of their life and be very precise and careful in seeing the fears that arise in you 
and again and again coming back to an openness that allows you to work with what's going on in you without getting lost in that stuff, that that can be a very deep inspiration to practice. So going back to this paradigm, there's these three channels of body, heart, and mind. And there are these five stages of development. Motivation, invocation, or awareness, the Hinayana, Theravada, Vipassana stage, that also in terms of the body has to do with being grounded and centered. The Mahayana stage that brings in compassion. The Vajrayana Tibetan stage, which brings in empowerment in the sense that when my heart becomes open enough and selfless enough through doing compassion practice, in that openness, then the power of the sacred can operate through me. The deities that we see over there is the thousand-armed Avalokiteshvara, for instance. He has the thousand arms to do compassionate action in this world. That when our heart becomes open enough, compassionate enough, then that quality can operate through us. Finally, the last stage of this practice, non-duality, Dzogchen, Mahamudra, Mahaati, whatever you want to call that, we, we get to the point where not only is the sacred operating through me, but all experience is completely of that one taste of sacredness, of wholeness. Life, death, sick, well, happy, sad, all of these truly are pure arisings of the nature of mind. And just as an example, Eckhart Tolle, I assume many of you are familiar with him, he was on Oprah's show a few years ago, and nine million people around the world were tuning into his podcast, and he was talking about non-duality, what I'm talking about right now. Eckhart Tolle is a, a beautiful, perfect, living example of that non-duality that he was talking about, and he's a very articulate guy. But at the same time, I would, I would guess that 99.9% .9 of the people listening to those podcasts were unable to rest in non-duality. Because these initial stages that I'm talking about here of getting grounded and centered, having appropriate boundaries, working with compassion, particularly compassion for self, is something that most of, the, most of us have really not done yet. I was in India a long time ago and had the, the great good fortune to be with the Dalai Lama before he was well known. There's no Nobel Prize yet. There was me and three or four of my friends in a room with him in Bodh Gaya, the place where the Buddha was enlightened. The Dalai Lama supposedly is the incarnation of compassion on this plane of existence. Bodh Gaya is a very, very poor place in India. And it's so poor, in fact, that people in that town encourage you not to feed the starving dogs because it only perpetuates their suffering. Let them starve to death. It would be, they would be better off if they died sooner rather than later. Open sores in their body, you can see their ribs showing clearly through their skin because they're so thin. So there we were with the Dalai Lama, who was the incarnation of Chinrezi, Avalokiteshvara, the god of compassion. And one of my friends asked him about compassion. We started talking about compassion. And he said, which do you think is greater? I'm the Dalai Lama, the head of the Tibetan state and the Tibetan religion, which he was at the time. Now he's only the Tibetan religion part of it. Which is greater, me the Dalai Lama, or these 20 or 30 starving dogs here in Bodh Gaya? And one of my friends, good straight man, said, 
you're the Dalai Lama. You're much greater than these 20 or 30 starving dogs in Bogai. And he said, no. They are one and I am many. They are greater than I. And my first reaction to that was, he's saying something to make a point. It's a great teaching story, isn't it? But as I sat with those words for just a few seconds, I could hear in my body that he truly believed and lived that his life was equal to the life of one starving dog in Bodhgaya. And he went on to talk about the quality of compassion is the ability to equalize and switch yourself with somebody else. So if in any moment I think that I'm better or worse than you, I'm sitting up on the stage and you're not, or I have a PhD and you don't, or I'm stupid and you're smart, or whatever it might happen to be. If in any moment I create that inequality, in that moment compassion becomes impossible. Equalizing myself and then switching. What does it feel like to be you? Now, I can't completely know what it feels like to be you, but I can open myself enough open myself up enough to feel the quality of suffering in your being without protecting myself from that. Let me tell you one other story from that same trip to India. I was in Banaras. I had just gotten my PhD from Stanford. I thought I was a pretty smart guy. And Banaras is the place where many people go to die because it's felt that when you die in Banaras, Shiva, as you're dying, comes and whispers Ram, Ram, in your ear as you're dying. So that your last moment on earth is hearing God's name and you become enlightened. Which means that there's a lot of dying people in Banaras, really sick people, really people in a bad way. And there's one particular place, it's called the Bathing Ghat by the main part of the Ganges there, where there's a lineup of dozens and dozens of beggars uh, seated in a row asking for alms. And just to set the setting a bit, this is, at that point at least, was the most crowded square mile on the planet. Wall-to-wall people, 110 degree temperature, dusty, just uh, very intense. And I was feeling particularly magnanimous, and I had changed some bills into a bunch of small coins. And I was going down the row of people, giving each one what amounted to like maybe a quarter or something like that. And uh, I came to one person, and I was about to put this coin in her begging bowl, and I looked at her. She was a leper. She had no hands or feet. She was on a, a, a wooden platform about the size of one of these meditation cushions, maybe two and a half feet by two and a half feet with small little wheels. And she had rusty tin cans pushed on the stumps of her wrists. So that the way she propelled herself on this very bumpy cobblestone road with wall-to-wall humanity, dust, and 110 degree temperature was by propelling herself with these tin cans that were, were, were pushed on her wrists. But strapped to her chest with filthy rags was a tiny, tiny baby. It looked like it was a few days old. Maybe it was so malnourished that it was older than that. I didn't know. I looked at this, and my mind started spinning. Who could have conceived a child with this woman? What's going to happen to this baby? My God, what's going to happen? And instead of giving her a coin, I reached in my other pocket and pulled out a rather large bank note and put it in her bowl. And she looked down at the uh, bowl in front of her, is on her cart, on her platform, and she looked up at me. And her expression started changing. And she looked down at the money again. And she looked up at me and she started looking upset. And she took her, her tin can wrist thing and 
knocked the, the, the bowl so the money went flying and she picked it up, picked up her bowl, put it on the cart and angrily propelled herself away without saying anything at all. Now, I didn't know why she had done that. But all I could, all I could guess at was that she couldn't afford to take money from somebody who felt sorry for her. Remember the Dalai Lama said that the, the quality of compassion is the ability to equalize and switch yourself with somebody. I could not, as this young guy just out of graduate school, bear to be equal to her. It was too frightening. But even beyond that, which is much closer to the truth, I couldn't bear to think about that baby. What was going to happen to that baby? In fact, in India, they even take babies and deform them so that, that the beggars will do better. So here was this baby who may or may not survive. I didn't know. But what happened was my boundary closed down. Too much suffering. I couldn't feel it. And I threw money at the problem and said, I'm out of here, energetically. And she could not, she could not in her integrity, accept money given in that spirit. So what I needed to do in that moment, which I couldn't do, and I couldn't even figure this out for, for months, was have compassion, not for her, not even for the baby, but for the part of me that was so frightened by that baby. I couldn't really truly, freely give her money until I could have compassion for that part of me that freaked out in relationship to what I imagined that situation was about. So this paradigm I put together, motivation, invocation, compassion, empowerment, and wholeness from the standpoint of the body, from the standpoint of the heart, from the standpoint of the mind. Uh, the mind channel is pretty much the Buddhist channel. I find for myself, I get a lot of my teachings from my body. I find that by seeing the way I don't have appropriate boundaries with people, how I get ungrounded in certain situations, how I get uncentered in certain situations, teaches me a lot about what I need to pay attention to, what I need to have compassion for. And for each of us, I told you before I had that fantastic meditation experience with Goenka. I'm a very skilled meditator, but what I need to do is go back to the very beginning again and again and get grounded and centered. If I can do that, the other stuff falls into place. Maybe for you, you need to work more with compassion or what's going on in your body from that standpoint. But to really begin to be honest about where you are on this path and work with the body, with the mind, with the heart, uh, is really what we're all doing here tonight. So we have about 15 more minutes. I would like to open this up to questions. And I believe there's somebody who's going to help me with the microphone part of the whole thing. Here comes Sean. So would anybody like to either remark or question? Do you want me to? I can turn this off and then. Okay. Hello. Can anyone hear me? Yeah. All right. So far, so good. We'll go for it. Yeah. And if people could speak very close to the microphone, it is a little sensitive or insensitive. <laughs> I've been working for a few years as a caregiver, and lately I've been getting clients that are in their 90s. Um, a woman that I've been recently working with, frequently at night, she 
believes that there are people in the house when there's no physical evidence to me or um, I don't hear it. I, right. I don't believe there is any such thing. But I, working with her, I see that um, just tell her no, reassure there's nobody in the house. When she herself is convinced of it, what do you, is there something that you can recommend in this regard? Did everybody hear the question? Okay. There are different levels of practice that we can do when we're meditating. There are different levels of practice we can do when we're caregivers. Uh, the deepest practice you can do is rest in the nature of your mind. Or if you can't do that, rest in your compassion. So that whether she's demented or not, I don't know. Uh, I had an aunt who had Alzheimer's disease and I was the only person in the family who could talk to her. Because everybody else says, she's got Alzheimer's disease, you can't talk to her. And we would have these conversations that made no sense to anybody else, but we had a great time. Uh, so I'm sitting here in front of you guys, and I can be caught in, I'm Dale and you're an audience and I'm trying to say the right thing and this and that. Or I can just get into my body, get into my heart, realize that this is all taking place in the belly of the Buddha or the heart of the Christ, and let the words come out of me. And to the extent I'm doing that second thing, my words, the, the content of my words don't make too much difference. So the best thing you can do for this woman is to be around her and be Christ, be Buddha. And it doesn't make any difference what you say or what you do. Uh, we can't always do that, obviously. Uh, there are other practices. There's something called the A-breath that you may have heard of. It's explained on our website. There's a, a wonderful Tibetan practice called taking and sending, where you, you breathe in her suffering, and you breathe out loving kindness to her. You breathe in with compassion. You breathe out with loving kindness. You're taking what's difficult of hers, and you're sending out what's precious of yours which is the opposite of what we usually do. Usually, we breathe in the good stuff and breathe out the bad stuff. Here we're doing the opposite. And in doing that, cutting at the root the place we're attached to our separateness. Beyond that, who are you to say that those people aren't in the room? I mean, it... it, it I've got a a son, believe it or not, who's nine years old, who sees beings running around. You know, and I just kind of have to believe that they're there most of the time, that he's not making these things up. And uh, what is reality? If she's, if she's having these experiences, then to have love and compassion for her and validate her so that she can enter the dying process with as much confidence and trust in what she knows, rather than people saying, you're getting kind of wacky here. This, you're not making any sense. Don't believe what you're saying. But to allow her to trust who she is. I mean, is it important if those beings are there, at what level they're there or not there? It's, to me, that's not so important. What's important is for her to feel compassion from you, to feel presence from you. And often, as people are losing their minds, they become very intuitive and, and uh, receptive to the feelings of those around them, much more than what people are saying. There's another question there behind you, I believe. Uh, Dale, I'm David. Is, is it working? Yeah. Um, I'm a physician, and I've been um, addictively and compulsively reading medical journals for most of my lifetime. And I'm just getting in touch with some of the very scary uh, and hurtful places that that comes from. I'm very interested in what you said about how you had to get over your PhD in mathematics. And I'd like you to speak some more about that. Uh, 
I seriously believe that intellectualism is the most persistent spiritual illness. <laughs> and that we live in a culture, I mean, I have a PhD from Stanford, so society says, if you do this math thing, we'll give you a lot of recognition, a lot of money, you can do all this stuff. And I was fortunate enough to meet Ram Dass and Suzuki Roshi and people like that when I was still in graduate school. So I kind of escaped with the, by the skin of my teeth, if you will, uh, which has made it hard to make a living for the rest of my life because I threw my PhD in the garbage can, essentially. Um, How long have you meditated? Steve Levine taught me to meditate um, 35 years ago. 35 years, okay. Uh, and what kind of doctor are you? Uh, I'm a traditional um, Western allopathic internal medicine geriatric physician. Geriatric physician, okay. So you're around a lot of dying people. Uh, how to summarize this? My feeling is that I've meditated for as long, even a bit longer than you. And I keep thinking, why do I have to meditate for 40 years to, to get somewhere here? What, what's that about? And the longer I do this, the, the more I really believe that the point of meditation is to realize that the harder you try, you're not going to get there. Maybe I shouldn't be saying this in these sacred halls here. I don't know if it's sacrilegious or something. But that in some way, the point of practice is getting to the point where you give up and you surrender. Wei Wu Wei a Chinese sage who was actually German said that what you are looking for <laughs> what you are looking for is who is looking. So that we keep looking for something out there. We keep trying to find more peace. We try to find uh, balance the factors of mind, if you will. And eventually become frustrated in the fact that we have these experiences probably wonderful experiences, but they come and they go. And I, I got very attached to certain mind states when I had that thing happen to me with Goenka. I spent years getting over trying to recreate this fantastic meditative experiences that I had been having in India. So maybe I'm not answering your question too well, but In my experience, there aren't too many real, true, died-in-the-will American Buddhists. That we're, we're being raised in a Judeo-Christian society, which is a devotional tradition. And not bringing in devotion into our Buddhist practice, I think, is, an, is, is a shame. I had the great good fortune to be with Maharaji, and I feel very close to Hanuman. But to find some way to really bring the, our heart of hearts into our practice. To, Mother Teresa talks about seeing Christ in his distressing disguise when she picks a leper out of the gutter in Calcutta. So uh, if you can honestly feel the suffering that is inherent in being lost in your mind, even when society is telling you, we'll give you all kinds of money and, and perks if you use your mind better and better, but if you can really feel the quality of suffering inherent being lost in your mind and have compassion for that, freedom does not lie far beyond that realization. Now, when I said that thing before about intellectualism being the most difficult spiritual disease, it's because we keep trusting our minds. We've been trained to trust our minds. The mind says, do a little more of this, do a little 
less of that. Who, who, is, who is running your practice? Who is telling you what you should do next in your meditation practice? Partly it's your ego structure. So that's why I find using this body channel in the beginning of really working with getting grounded, getting centered, and working with boundaries. After I've done that, then a lot of these other practices I've done earlier have begun to just fall into place very naturally. Now, I'm not saying that's true for everybody, but I'm a highly trained intellectual. And I need to get back in my body. Buddha and all those guys and females who were teaching all these practices thousands of years ago were walking around barefoot. They loved their mommy and their daddy. They were very grounded, centered people. And we need to get back to having an embodied practice. And then the further practices of disidentifying with ego structure happen much more smoothly and naturally and easily. So take Qigong or take a lot of walks on Mount Tam or things like that. When you meet somebody, you can feel where they are in their body. Is somebody talking from their head? Is somebody talking from their heart? Is somebody talking from their belly? What they say in energetic practice is that the belly supports the heart. So I imagine that most everybody in this room at various times in your life has had a very, very open heart being with a child, being with nature, being with music, being with a lover, whatever it might happen to be. And at other times, the heart closes down. Open heart, closed heart, open heart, closed heart. Until there is the foundation of being grounded and centered, becoming autonomous in the belly, the heart is going to be open only as long as it feels safe, which is when we're grounded and centered. So for me, it's taken a lot of humility to go back to the very beginning stages of practice and having my butt firmly planted on Mother Earth, if you will. We only have five more minutes. Other questions over there? Oh, well, let's, let's do, do this gentleman and we'll try to get the other one in too. Uh, Dale, I wonder if you could talk a little more about uh, confronting death. I mean. Uh, what did you say again? A, a dilettante. You're, we're dilettantes until we confront death, or until death is truly present in our lives. Right. How do you? How does one do that? <laughs> You're right. Well, I've just been diagnosed with cancer, so I'm having an easier time than I had before. I remember when I had been working with Stephen Levine for some years and had been around a whole bunch of dying people, and I was on a accident on the freeway where it wasn't really death-defying, but my car was sort of spinning out of control on highways, I don't know, over there by Fremont, whatever they, they call the Highway 80, whatever it is over there. And I wasn't afraid of dying intellectually at all. When the, my car stopped spinning and I tried to stand up, my knees wouldn't work. My body was afraid of dying. My mind wasn't afraid of dying. The idea of dying was, oh, dying. And I've been around a lot of dying, but my body was afraid of dying. So there are different ways to confront fear of death or to heal fear of death. I mentioned before that fear of death equals lack of enlightenment. When we're meditating, when you get concentrated enough, if you really pay attention, you will notice, I think, what I have noticed. And that is, I'm sitting there watching my breath, being in my heart, whatever I'm doing, resting in spaciousness. And then a thought comes up. And then maybe a, another thought comes up. And then I notice that I'm thinking. And the awareness of the thoughts, the mind quiets down. I'm resting in spaciousness again. feels great. Time goes on. Another thought comes up. A bunch of thoughts come up. I notice the thoughts. Awareness of the thought, spaciousness. But if I really pay attention, right before the thought comes up, there's fear of death. In a very, very subtle way. There's some part of me that wants to know I exist. Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. 
which is bullshit. But we believe it in a certain way, that we want to keep thinking so we know we are. So if you can watch for that place where you want to think, you want to know you're somebody, and then go deeply enough into your practice, which is what we do in these groups. I'm giving a plug for my groups now. We go through these stages. We, we get to the point where we rest in spaciousness. The other thing you can do is be around dying people. Actually be with death. So whether you do it meditatively or physically, coming to that point of completely letting go of control and surrendering into the next moment is what we're talking about here. And, you know, to summarize this in two or three minutes obviously doesn't do it complete justice. But I, being as stubborn and intellectual and mathematical as I am, if I hadn't spent all these years around dying people, I would be much more of a son of a bitch than I am right now. <laughs> Ramda said, if you're a son of a bitch and you get enlightened, you'll be an enlightened son of a bitch, which is probably true. But being around dying people, if, if I'm around somebody who's dying, and I know I might never see that person again, how can I be other than really trying to be with that person? Now, I don't know if I'm ever going to see most of you ever again. We're going to be bringing this thing to a close in about two minutes. Here we are together for two minutes. How, how alive can we be together? How much can we love each other? What else is there to do? You can judge me. He's clever. He's not so clever. What, I mean, all that stuff is irrelevant. They're pretty irrelevant. Okay, there is one other oh, one person over there with the white scarf on. I'm just curious what your suggestions are for getting grounded. What are my suggestions for getting grounded? Well, uh, there are some wonderful meditations out there. There's a guy named Reginald Ray, who is a student of Trungpa Rinpoche, who has a book about, what's his book called? Has anybody read that book? A lot of stuff about the, the bodily track of spirituality. Uh, certainly being out in, on the earth barefoot, having your, your, your skin touching the earth is a very useful thing to do. Uh, to me, being grounded has a lot to do with the mother, trusting the mother. There is an energetic earth underneath us, not the earth of dirt and rocks and worms, but the energetic earth that is vast and infinite and is the source of all creation. Can you, as you breathe out, let go through the base of your torso down into the earth? And with each out-breath, go further and further into that earth. And with each in-breath, receive the energy that is grounding, supportive, the energy of the mother. We live in a very patriarchal culture, obviously. And the first developmental stage that a baby goes through really is getting grounded on her back, on her stomach, seated, crawling, standing, moving around. And then after that comes being centered in the hara, the kath, the dante, and the belly. Until we're grounded and centered, all this letting go stuff is going to be very problematic. It's going to come and it's going to go. Because there's nobody, there's no, there's no, nobody there in the first place. The language gets kind of complicated here. But uh, until we, at the level of duality, become autonomous, we can't go into compassion. And the first stage of compassion is I am doing compassion. Compassion is at the center of the path where it, that then becomes I am compassion, and then it becomes compassion. There's not even an I being compassionate. So compassion is that tipping point at the center of the spiritual path where I am no longer practicing, but it is 
there's surrender happening into that which is at various levels. So I probably shouldn't go over time. That's a, probably a big no-no here, I guess, isn't it? You can make a quick announcement. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Dale. Turn myself off, or did you turn me? You, tu- you turn me off. <laughs> that happens to me all the time. Look at this. I'd like to thank you all very much, and I appreciate being here tonight. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dale. Um, and I just wanted to say thank you to all those who were here on uh, December 26th that night. Uh, we raised over $1,200 for the B Street Soup Kitchen to to support them over the holiday season. So uh, they would like to thank you. Jack would like to thank you. um, And I would like to thank you. All right. Thank you.